are listening to audio from Emmanuel Church in Birmingham, Alabama. For more resources like this one, go to EmmanuelBirmingham.com. Good morning, church. Our preaching text this morning is 2 Corinthians chapter 6, starting in verse 14. We'll read all the way through chapter 7, verse 1. 2 Corinthians chapter 6, starting verse 14. Um, it'll be on the screen for you. I encourage you guys to, to bring a Bible with you, just to have in front of you, whether it be physical or digital or whatever the case may be. Um, I know we get the screens and they're helpful. But it's always nice just to have in front of you. So I encourage you to do that if you haven't been doing that. 2 Corinthians chapter 6, beginning in verse 14. Hear the word of the Lord. Do not be unequally yoked with unbelievers. For what partnership has righteousness with lawlessness? Or what fellowship has light with darkness? What accord has Christ with Belial? Or what portion does a believer share with an unbeliever? What agreement has the temple of God with idols? For we are the temple of the living God. As God said, I will make my dwelling among them and walk among them. I will be their God and they shall be my people. Therefore go out from their midst and be separate from them, says the Lord, and touch no unclean thing. Then I will welcome you, and I will be a father to you, and you shall be sons and daughters to me, says the Lord Almighty. Since we have these promises, beloved, let us cleanse ourselves from every defilement of body and spirit, bringing holiness to completion in the fear of God. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Well, good morning. Uh, I am grateful to see you. I am... just so thankful for you, and I mean, we've been here now, what, Christine, three and a half, three months, three and a half months, kind of crazy. Just the mercy and kindness of God through you is just evident, and um, yeah, I know I've said this before, I remember talking to Cherie Hall the very first time I met her at a GC leader gathering, I hadn't even been hired technically yet, Um, I was still kind of trying out, Um, but she said, how can we best serve you? And I said, well, you can just love my family. Like, that's the best way to serve me is just to love my family. And you guys have done that. And so, so grateful for you. And so, so thankful to be here and um, just be able to serve alongside you. So thank you. Thank you so much for the kindness you've shown me and my family. Uh, week four of Reset. Um, I know it's been good for my soul, I hope it's been good for your soul, just to be reminded of God's grace uh, through the giving uh, of himself to us in the gospel, week one, the giving of us to one another in the church, week two, the giving of his word to us in the Bible, week three, and as we remind ourselves every week at the end of our worship gatherings, just a good thing to ponder on the gracious giving nature of our God that he has given us himself. He's given us one another. He's given us his word. He's just so generous to us. And so, uh, so today, uh, grateful to open up God's word with you here in 2 Corinthians. Um, and if you're like me, so um, I, uh, it's scary if you are like me, but if you are like me uh, in this regard, um, there are oftentimes in my daily life where I come across just a common uh, inconvenience, I don't think it's a problem, that's too strong of a word, but a common inconvenience 
where I think to myself, why has nobody created something to address this problem? I'm sure I'm not the only one that deals with this. Why has nobody made something to fix this? It happens all the time. And I think to myself as well, if I just had more time and more money, I would make something, make a bunch of money, and then everybody's problems would be solved in this world regarding this issue. Uh, let me give you an example. So, um, <laughs> butter, all right, butter. Um, how many of us uh, have gone to Cracker Barrel? Just, just go with me here just for a second. Gone, with, gone to Cracker Barrel, or pick your breakfast, breakfast place of choice. You show up, and it's a cold, crisp fall morning. The fire is blazing in the fireplace, and before you is dropped just a plate of hot, warm, flaky biscuits, right? And you're sitting there, and you just smell the embers of the fire. You smell the goodness of the biscuit, and you're just full of scented joy in your mind and in your heart. It's just hitting you all at once. And they bring that little bowl of, like, jellies and butters and honey sometimes. And if you ask for it, apple butter, which is nice. And you're just thinking, just thank you, Lord, for your grace and your kindness towards me in this flaky, delicious, warm biscuit. And everything for about a minute is like right in the world, right? And then you grab that soft, warm biscuit and you slice through it, just a clean, beautiful slice, even on both sides. You see, it's just the steam just coming off the biscuit, right? The anticipation just building in your taste buds about what you're about to experience. And then you grab that packet of butter and it's like as cold as ice, right? It's like as hard as a rock. Um, and you're just like, what in the world? You know, I mean, you're all laughing. You know where I'm going with this. You put it on the biscuit, and it's literally like just this giant lump of disappointment just sitting on this beautiful biscuit that you've been anticipating. And so you just try to spread it, right? And it just rips your beautiful biscuit to shreds. And so you finally just give up. And you leave it as one giant block on your biscuit. And you have the option. You can, I mean, you can, like, you know, put it on one slice and put it on top of the other one and let it melt and soften in your biscuit before you eat it. But nobody has time for that. And so, uh, so you leave this, this biscuit and this cold block of disappointment on your biscuit. And you take the first bite and you get more butter than biscuit, right? And it's just like, well, this is... This is ruined because this cold, hard butter has ruined my beautiful, flaky biscuit. And every time that happens, and it happens all the time, I think to myself, I need to create something that warms butter before restaurants bring it out to you. And before you say that's called a microwave, just hold on for a second, but warms butter and brings it out, a machine that holds the quality of the butter, yet softens the butter, and it's restaurant-worthy and ready to be served at a moment's notice, all right? I need to make that. Maybe I will one day. Maybe it does exist, and I just don't know. But... The point is, a machine that is uniquely designed and set apart for one particular purpose, to warm butter. And there are all kinds of tools and machines that exist in this world that have one job to do, one thing they've been set apart to accomplish. Things like uh, vehicles that are specifically designed to clean street signs, all right, that exist. Uh, chairs designed for people who want to sit cross-legged in a chair. Those exist. 
Um, sights on rifles for left-eye dominant shooters. Those things exist. A tool that literally allows, this is amazing, a tool that literally allows one man, like a hand tool, to move an entire train by himself. Like that exists. That tool exists. Just literally like a hand tool. On and on we can go. But throughout the known world, there are items and machines that have one specific purpose. that have been set apart to accomplish one goal. And the Bible has a word that's used to describe something set apart for one purpose, and it's the word holy. Holy. First and foremost throughout the scriptures, holy is used to describe God. God is holy. He is set apart. He's unique. He's completely other. He is qualitatively different than anything that we could conjure up or imagine or think up or have seen with our eyes, anything our minds can comprehend. And I mentioned this before, but, but the word holy is the only attribute of God that's ever repeated three times in the scriptures. Holy, holy, holy. Three times. No other attribute of God in all of the Bible is ever repeated three times. And in Hebrew poetry, repetition was the way you, you put forward the significance of something. So if you want to put importance on a phrase or on a word, you repeat it. But holy is the only word ever repeated three times, which raises it to the ultimate significance. God is holy, holy, holy. He is unique. He's set apart. He is other. But the scriptures also speak of God's people being holy, being set apart. Now, qualitatively, we are not holy in the way God is holy. He is distinct from us. He's different from us. But God's people are called to be set apart to be distinct, to be different than the rest of the world. The people of God have been created for a specific purpose, namely to bring God glory by living our lives in accordance with His holiness and His commands for us to be holy. From Adam and Eve made in God's image in the garden to reflect His nature and character to the created order, His holiness to the nation of Israel, as they're on the edge of the promised land, about to enter into this land full of other nations and God's command for them to be holy, to be distinct, to be other, to us in this room as we come to 2 Corinthians chapter 6, this newly formed people of God called the church. At each juncture along the way, the command is the same. Be holy as I am holy, says the Lord. And our central proposition this morning that we're going to unpack the rest of our time together is this. As the people of God, we are called to be set apart in identity, in mission, and in hope. As the people of God, we're set apart, we're holy in identity, mission, and hope. So 2 Corinthians, the second letter Paul has written to the church in Corinth, uh, is where we come to this morning. Most scholars think there were four letters actually written to the church in Corinth. We have two preserved for us, handed down through the centuries to us. And if you've ever read First or Second Corinthians, it's very obvious that this was a church with a lot of issues, a lot of problems. I mean, there were sects, S-C-C-T-S, um, revolving around celebrity pastors. That's not new. Or sexual immorality infiltrating the walls of the church. There were ceremonies and celebrations devoted to idols that some in the church were continuing to take part in. Members of the church were suing one another 
in open court. I mean, there were, there were problems just permeating this church. It's a mess. It's a huge mess. And Paul's writing these letters. And, and yes, he is rebuking them and correcting them and calling on them to repent of their sin. But he's also, at the same time, gently reminding them of who they are in Christ Jesus, of who God has set them apart to be, of what Christ has done in them and for them. And he repeatedly calls them to live holy lives within their new identity. So as we come to our text this morning, in this second letter, Paul reminds them of his deep love and affection for them, that he loves them. That's why he's telling them these things, even as he seeks to correct them and bring them into alignment into God's word and his holiness for their lives. So read with me again, 2 Corinthians chapter 6, verses 14 to 16. It says, do not be unequally yoked with unbelievers. For what partnership has righteousness with lawlessness? What fellowship has light with darkness? What accord has Christ with Belial? What portion does a believer share with an unbeliever? What agreement has the temple of God with idols? So let's stop right there for a second. Do not be unequally yoked with unbelievers. It's this image conjured up of of uh, two animals plowing a field, right, with a yoke, that, that wooden thing that goes around their necks that's used to guide and to steer, two different animals plowing a field together of a different kind. Um, so, for example, a couple of places in the law of Moses, Leviticus and Deuteronomy in particular, speak to this. Deuteronomy 22.10, God commands his people, you shall not plow with an ox and a donkey together. So animals of a different kind, all right, an ox and a donkey, okay, plowing a field together. Don't do that. He goes on to talk about uh, Moses, God through Moses. Don't, uh, or I lost a place, don't sow two kinds of seed in the same field. Don't use two different types of material in the same garment. Don't let your cattle breed with other animals. This, this idea of being unequally yoked in a variety of purposes. And the reason Paul uses this imagery here in 2 Corinthians 6 is to communicate that just as two different animals plowing a field will bring an incongruous mismatch to the task at hand, so too, by believers uniting themselves with unbelievers, it will produce a mismatch. Not only in identity, but a mismatch in mission and hope as well. You know, the Corinthian church, they had one foot in Christianity and they had one foot in idolatry. They were trying to play both sides, to live in both worlds. And Paul is stating here that this is not how the people of God should live. Now, verse 14 is often used uh, in, in discussions about marriages, right? Believers to unbelievers, and, and it is that, but it's much more, more than that. It's not limited to that. And just to give a few qualifiers here before we kind of unpack what Paul's talking about here and being unequally yoked, a few qualifiers into the type of interactions and relationships the church should refrain from. First, what Paul is not saying is he's not saying that we should put a full-blown stop in associating with people who are not Christians. This isn't Christian isolationism, where we hole ourselves off from the bad people and create communities for ourselves full of Christians, because the problems, honestly, are not out there. They're in here, right? You can't run far enough from yourself and your own wicked heart. My own wicked heart. I mean, Paul says as much in 1 Corinthians 5, 9 and 10. He says, I wrote to you in my letter not to associate with sexually immoral people. Not at all meaning that sexually immoral of this world or the greedy and swindlers or idolaters, since then you would need to go out of the world. A.K.A. 
Don't cut off those without Christ because not only do they need Jesus, but it would be literally impossible. You can't do it. They're all around you. And you're not escaping problems by creating your own ideal colonies of Christians because you have issues just as much as they have issues. Second caveat, what Paul is not saying. He's saying with regards to marriage here, and this text has been used in believers and unbelievers getting married, he never instructs believers married to unbelievers to leave the marriage. Ever. In fact, he says to stay in hopes that the unbelieving spouse may be won to Christ through the conduct of the Christian spouse. Not ideal to enter into marriage if you're a believer with an unbeliever. It's not ideal. There'll be many, many issues that rise to the surface, especially as you start to have children. But... Once you're in, stay in that marriage that Christ may use you in the life of your unbelieving spouse. So he's not saying get divorced if you're in that kind of marriage. And third caveat, Paul assumes the church will continue to show gospel hospitality to those outside of Christ. Paul expects believers to eat in the homes of non-Christians and to have non-Christians eat with you in your home. We talked about this a little a couple weeks ago. It's the idea of eating together, this sense of belonging, the sense of, of intimacy, right? When you gather around a table with people you care about. In the context of food, uh, sacrifice to idols in 1 Corinthians chapter 10, verse 27, Paul says, If one of the unbelievers invites you to dinner and you're disposed to go, eat whatever is set before you without raising any question on the ground of conscience. Eat. Eat with Christians. Eat with non-Christians. All right? Fellowship with them, in a sense. So if these are the caveats, when we allow other places of Scripture to help us unpack what Paul is saying and not saying here in 2 Corinthians 6, then what is Paul saying in 2 Corinthians 6 about being unequally yoked to unbelievers? Well, to answer that, let me briefly unpack verses 15 and 16 for us. Paul asks five rhetorical questions in verses 15, the beginning of verse 16. Five questions. Where if we were to answer those five questions, we would say, our answer would be, well, none whatsoever. Let me give an example. First question. For what partnership has righteousness with lawlessness? None whatsoever, right? And you go on down the line. First question, second question, third, fourth, and fifth. None whatsoever. And I created a chart here. Actually, I, I wrote it on paper, and then somebody else, Blake, created it. <laughs> But I want to see broken down the five questions just in exactly what Paul is talking about. So let's start with these last two columns here. Word for believer, word for unbeliever, and using these five questions. The words used to describe a believer are completely different in kind to those used to describe an unbeliever, right? Side note, that word belial there, that third word down under word for unbeliever, um, it's the Greek transliteration of the Hebrew word that just means like, a wicked person in the Old Testament. By the time Paul writes this letter, there were some Christian groups in the time frame in the area that were using that as actually a formal name for Satan. So Christ and Satan is that question. What, what accord does Christ have with Satan? And the answer again is none whatsoever, right? If we were to answer the question. And then look at the first column here. These relationship words, partnership, fellowship, accord, Portion, agreement, these are all words of intimacy and mission, right? Just this deep partnership, this deep fellowship together. And they all communicate this shared language. It takes two people to be partners. It takes two people, at least two people, to fellowship. 
takes at least two people to be in accord with one another, right? Paul is not here denying the humanity of unbelievers. Human, uh, human beings, regardless of what you believe, are made in the image of God. They carry with, a, with them the image of their creator. He is simply pointing out the radical differences that exist between Christians and non-Christians, right? Because ultimately, we do differ in identity, in mission, and in hope. You know, it seems sometimes uh, in our world that these differences are becoming less and less pronounced, right? With every moral scandal that comes across uh, the news feeds of some pastor or ministry leader falling from grace or churches and denominations kind of capitulating to the demands of the culture and compromising due to pressures of the day or the prosperity gospel just eating alive people, just eating them alive who are seeking financial gain more than seeking Christ. With, the pro- with less and less discernment being given to what we should or should not participate in as believers when it comes to events to attend or shows to watch or, or philosophies to follow. I mean, it just seems like the church is actually becoming less and less distinct from the culture. And it's hard, is it not? I mean, it is hard to know what to do and what not to do sometimes. You know, it's, sometimes it's, it's really easy to spot things contrary to Scripture, right? There are some things that are black and white. Those are easy. But if Satan disguises himself as an angel of light, if his way of deceiving is, is to not let us see as clearly what is right and what is wrong, if he is a deceiver in that way and a thief in that way, then more often than not, he's going to flourish not in the white, obviously, maybe not even in the black but in the gray, right? In the gray. What I mean by that is he is going to slowly deceive us oftentimes rather than lead us to a cliff for us to jump off. It's going to take time. Tim Keller says, he's talking about marriage in his book, The Meaning of Marriage. He says, the primary reason marriages fail is not because of a Niagara Falls huge scandal, because of a leaky drip that over time just wears away at the marriage. So it's difficult, church. It's difficult sometimes to know how to navigate things in this culture. And as a result, sometimes we begin looking more like the culture than we do like the church. And by posing his thesis here, do not be unequally yoked to unbelievers, then unpacking what that is, that it's impossible for believers to be joined in intimacy and kind to unbelievers, Paul then unpacks in even more detail why this is impossible in the following verses. He starts with identity, who believers are, who Christians are. And he states that in terms of identity, the people of God are now the temple of God. The people of God are now the temple of God. Verse 16b literally says it, for we are the temple of the living God. By bringing out this identity marker, Paul is communicating three truths concerning the people of God. Three truths of who we are. Indicatives, statement, indicative statements about who we are. First, if the people of God are now the temple of God, then that means that God's presence dwells among them. Right? That God's presence dwells among them. Verse 16, again, as God said, here he quotes these texts from the Old Testament. 
He says, I will, as God said, I will make my dwelling among them. As God was giving the commands in the Old Testament to Moses about the tabernacle, as God was handing down plans to Solomon regarding the temple in 1 Kings, one of the primary truths the tabernacle and the temple set in the middle of the people communicated was that the God of Israel is a God who dwells with his people. That he dwells among his people. That he was not a God far off, but he was a God that was near. And this finally comes to its fruition at Pentecost, right? Christ has come, right? First, uh, John 1.14, the Word became flesh, the Incarnation, and He dwelt among us, literally tabernacled among us. And then Pentecost, Acts chapter 2, Christ has died, rose again, ascended to the Father. The people of God are waiting for the Holy Spirit to fall on them. In Acts 2, the Spirit falls, fills up the believers. That's why Paul can say that your bodies now are temples of the Holy Spirit. Because the Spirit now fills you up when Christ saves you. He houses Himself, in a sense, in your body. And then we, as all these little temples come together to form this, this big temple that's being built upon the cornerstone of Christ Jesus, we are now the dwelling place of God. But there's one distinguishing factor between us and the saints of the Old Testament when it comes to the presence of God with His people. In the Old Testament, God dwelt with His people. In the New Testament, God dwells in His people. Dr. Benjamin Glad, he's a professor at RTS, he said this. He says, as strange as it might seem, God's awesome presence dwells more intimately with each New Testament believer than it ever did with Adam and Eve in the garden or the nation of Israel at Sinai. Isn't that crazy? Think about that the presence of God is near to us than he ever was near to Israel or even to sinless Adam and Eve in the Old Covenant because God never dwelled in his people, but now he does through Christ. Christ dwelling among us in the incarnation was a foretaste of God dwelling in us through the Holy Spirit as people. And he is near to us now than he has ever been to his people before. You ever feel like God is aloof to you? Did you ever lay your head down on your pillow at night and offer up prayers to a God and you just feel like those prayers are just hitting the ceiling? He's not listening to you, that he's distant from you. I know I have. But take heart, believer. Take heart. Because God is near you nearer to you than you can even begin to imagine, even if you don't feel that at certain times. Second, by being the temple of God, it also means that God's work is now mediated through his people. God's work is now mediated through his people. God says here uh, in verse 16, I will walk among them. Walking is activity, right? Walking is an active verb. God will be active among us as the temple of the living God. And again, Paul's taking us back to the Old Testament, bringing to our mind the work of the priests. All right? The priest's primary responsibility in the Old Testament was to mediate between the people and God, right? They stood in the gap, so to speak. This took place in a variety of ways. They prayed for the people of God, they offered sacrifices on behalf of the people of God. 
They were guardians of God's holiness. They kept out things that were unclean from the temple, unclean from their hearts. They were go-between, stand-ins between God and his people. So Jesus comes, right? Our great high priest, the, the final, the fulfillment of all priestly stuff, work. He is the fulfillment of that. And he prays for his people, prayed for us on earth, prays for us even now at the Father's right hand. He offered himself as a sacrifice on our behalf, the priest and the offering. He was both, right? He guards the church and its people from defilement and from sin. He's protecting us, church. He is the apex of all things priest. But when he left the earth, although his priestly work continues in the heavenlies, He gave a portion of his priestly work to us through his spirit. Priests are not only those in name. Listen, when I say priests, I'm not talking about paid clergy, all right? I'm not talking about myself and the elders. I'm talking about every single person that God has saved. You are a priest or a priestess. We are a kingdom of priests, 1 Peter 2, verse 9. And what that means is that we mediate God's presence to one another as priests. We pray for each other. We fight sin together. We teach each other the word. We guard our own hearts from sin and defilement. You know, most often by God's grace through the Spirit, we sense the nearness of God through the nearness of one another. So if you're here at Emmanuel Church and you're not connected to people, you're not going to feel the nearness oftentimes of the presence of God. You might feel alone oftentimes. You need the people of God to remind you of the nearness of God. He is near you. He's near us when we're in pain. He's near us when we're in joy, right? We're to encourage one another, comfort one another, pray for each other, love each other, teach each other, challenge one another, mediate the work of God through one another to one another. We're a temple. We are the temple of the living God, church, and temples need priests. And so we are. And then the third thing, we as the temple communicates, third thing, God's claim now rests on his people. God's claim now rests on his people. I will be their God, the text says, and they shall be my people. It's called the covenant formula. You see this all throughout the Old Testament. Anytime a a new covenant was cut in the Old Testament, this distinguishing mark was a part of that. I will be their God, and they shall be my people. Yahweh, God, Israel, people, Old Testament. That each covenant, the people of God were being reconstituted. It's like a renewal service in a sense, reminded of who they were and who God was. And then Paul here sees with the death and resurrection of Christ that God has finally and fully reconstituted his people under the banner of Jesus Christ. The temple is no longer a distinguishing mark for one ethnic group, but now, in the new covenant age, the temple of God is now the community of newly formed Jews and Gentiles being built up into the new temple of the Holy Spirit. That's why Peter says in 1 Peter 2 verse 8, we are living stones being built up together to form a spiritual house, right? Upon the cornerstone of Christ Jesus. He's the foundation. We're being built up together. And the amazing thing about that imagery, living stone imagery, 
is the temple in the Old Testament was a static building in a sense, right? It's a building. You know, it's built with precious stones. But the new temple, being made up of living stones, means that each you and I, if we're living stones, living stones speak to one another. We talk to one another. As we're being built up into this temple, we encourage one another. We remind each other of the gospel. We communicate to each other. It's a living house being built up, and stones are being added to it every single day. It's an amazing, amazing thing, because God has his claim on us. And the people of God are the temple of God. So God dwells among us. He mediate, we mediate that presence to one another. He's claimed us through Christ as his people. Those things are true of us. They make up our new identity. And they all collectively communicate one significant marker and mission. And it's, the, it's that the people of God are set apart for the purposes of God. The people of God are set apart for the purposes of God. Temple, priests, God's people, all these components have one common characteristic, and it's the characteristic, the command, be holy. Be holy. The temple was set apart. Priests were set apart. God's people were set apart to be holy. Holy. Verse 17. Therefore, go out from their midst, be separate from them, says the Lord, and touch no unclean thing. In other words, be distinct, be set apart, be holy. In the Old Testament, the only reason God could remain among his people was their holiness. Every single law given by God to his people was to keep them holy, unstained by the world. God cannot dwell in the midst of a people who are unholy, who are sinful. Therefore, to maintain the presence of God among them, the people of God must always be cleansing and reforming. That was the Old Testament way. Now, this command to be holy takes two forms. It takes a passive form. I'm talking about passive holiness. God has made us holy. We are set apart. When God saves us in Christ Jesus... He sets us apart for a specific purpose. We had nothing to do with that. That was all the work of God. It's all by grace through faith in God that we are set apart. A new identity, a new mission, a new hope, all those things are from the Lord through the Spirit. He has set us apart to be distinct and useful as His people in this world. He's cleansed us, made us holy in status because of Christ. We are holy. But at the same time, although an aspect of holiness is passive in nature... The New Testament also talks about an act of holiness, setting ourselves apart. Another word for this is the word sanctification. That's a good biblical word, but it basically means the process of maturing or becoming more holy by means of the Spirit, more like Christ. One of the things I constantly hear communicated to me on a regular basis is I just want to be closer in my relationship with Christ. I want to grow in my relationship with Christ. And that is a great thing. Praise the Lord. I mean, if God is drawing you to himself and giving you those desires to grow in your relationship with God, that is an amazing thing. Praise the Lord. But my response to those statements is not, hey, that's fantastic. Listen, don't do anything. Don't worry about reading your Bible. Don't worry about praying. Don't worry about giving. Don't worry about serving. Don't worry about the community. Don't concern yourself with confessing sin or doing any kind of serious heart work, internal, you know, looking at things going on in your own life. Just sit back, prop your feet up, and let the Spirit of God do the work. That would be like wanting to become a great basketball player, 
And instead of getting fit and running drills or playing other teams, you prop your feet up and play NBA 2K22 on Xbox. You may know a lot about the players. You may know a lot about you know, teams, maybe even front office stuff, depending on what mode you play. But you're not going to be a good basketball player. You're not going to grow in your ability to shoot a basketball. It's just not going to happen. Now hear me when I say this. Hear me very clearly when, I, when I'm talking about this. Christianity is not a works-based righteousness. All right? You don't earn favor with God based off of things you do. We are saved by grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone. We do not earn right standing before God. He gives that to us in His grace. But to grow in our Christian faith, if we want to go grow closer to the Lord, it is a partnership with the Holy Spirit. That the Holy Spirit is working in us. As He is working in us, He uses the means of being in the Word, of prayer, of being with believers, of giving, of serving, of sacrificing our lives for the sake of other people. The means to grow us more into Christ-likeness, to make us more holy, so to speak, set apart, distinct. The Bible's full of God-ordained means that He has called us to put to use in order to be set apart. I won't spend too much time here, but over the next few weeks, we're going to be looking at some of these God-ordained means. The worship gathering, how to pray, confessing sin, gospel communities, all these means that God uses to grow us more, to make us more holy, more set apart for His purposes for us. So our identity is that of a temple. Our mission is to be holy. And Paul then moves on as we kind of wrap things up here in the next few minutes to our hope as Christ followers, by giving us promises in response to our holiness. We, as God's people, are confident in the promises of God. We're confident. This is our hope, the promises of God. Read with me again verses 17 and 18. Paul says, Therefore go out from their midst and be separate from them, says the Lord, and touch no unclean thing. Then I will welcome you. I will be a father to you. And you shall be sons and daughters to me, says the Lord Almighty. First promise, God will deliver us from exile. God will deliver us from exile. You may be thinking, what does that have to do with this? So Paul here is quoting Ezekiel 20, 34. When, when he quotes here, I will welcome you. Those are words from the Lord to a people in exile in Ezekiel 20, 34. And they're in exile due to a lack of holiness. And they're awaiting a return to the land. God to rescue them and bring them back into their land, to exile. We are exiles in this world, church. This is not our home. This is not our home, our final destination. We are exiles here. Pursuing holiness will make the feeling of that exile even more acute. We will feel it more. We will feel more of the contrast between the ways of God and the ways of this world as we pursue holiness. And as we're fighting sin, as we are guarding ourselves and this church of sin on a regular basis, we will feel even more strongly that contrast between us and the world. We'll feel the weight of exile more and more in our daily lives, and it will make us yearn more and more for Christ to come and rescue us. So that's the first thing, first promise. God will rescue us from exile. Christ is coming back. 
and he'll rescue us too. God will care for us as our Father. As we live holy lives, we have the good pleasure of our Father. 2 Samuel 7, God is making a covenant with King David, and he tells him that he will be a father to him. David will be a son to him. This is unique because up to that point, the father-son kind of language had only been used to describe God and a corporate people, Israel, never an individual. But Christ comes on the scene, the perfect holy son of God, and he opens up the door of intimacy between us and God where God can be our father and we can be his sons and daughters. No matter what your earthly fathers may or may have been like, you can call the creator and the sustainer of the universe the most beautiful name that can ever cross the lips of a human father. We are the living, we are the temple of the living God, church, and as such, God is so near to us that we feel his affection as a father to his children. And then third, not only is God our Father, but we are His sons and daughters. Through Christ, God gives us a family. When we seek to live holy lives, when we truly seek to live distinct from this world, living by the commands of Scripture and not the culture, when we do that, we will lose relationships, church. Even familial relationships. You may relationally lose fathers and mothers and sisters and brothers. You may lose your children. You may lose close friends. We don't purposely drive them away. We never do that, but this is the reality of living a life in accordance with the Scriptures. You may lose relationships in this world. It's been true since the first century and it's true even now. But Jesus has promised us something greater. He says in Mark 10, 29 and 30, Truly I say to you, there is no one who has left house or brothers or sisters or mother or father or children or lands for my sake and for the gospel who will not receive a hundredfold now in this time houses and brothers and sisters and mothers and children and lands with persecutions and in the age to come eternal life. As we lose family in this life, which as the years progress will happen more and more, if we continue to stand on the word of the Lord, it will happen more and more. As we lose family in this life and friends in this life, God gives us a bigger family in this life and in the life to come. It's the family not marked by blood, but marked by the Spirit. Whatever we lose in this life for the sake of Christ will be given back more graciously than we could ever ask or imagine. That's what we are to one another. As people leave us, church, we will have one another in Christ. Brothers and sisters, sons and daughters of our Father. And then Paul leaves us with one final reminder. Oh yeah, be holy. Verse 7, or chapter 7, verse 1. Since we have these promises, beloved, let us cleanse ourselves from every defilement of body and spirit, bringing holiness to completion in the fear of God. These promises propel us forward even towards more holiness. 
We pursue holiness, forsaking the pleasures of this world to gain greater pleasures now and in the world to come. And we keep our eyes on a final promise in Revelation 15, that that a day is coming when the holy church of God, us who have put our faith in Christ Jesus, will sing the song of Moses. Great and amazing are your deeds, O Lord God, the Almighty. Just and true are your ways, O King of the nations. Who will not fear, O Lord, and glorify your name? For you alone are holy. All nations will come and worship you, for your righteous acts have been revealed. Amen. Amen. Come, Lord Jesus. Come quickly. Let's pray together. Father, if our eyes have truly seen the King, as Isaiah says in Isaiah 6, if our eyes have truly seen the King, then may our response be just as Isaiah's is. Here am I, send me. The response of Isaiah, Father, was not rooted in his knowledge of where he was going to go. The response was not rooted in his knowledge of safety or comfort or security. He knew none of those things, but he knew the king. He had seen the king in his holiness and in his glory. And the only response was, use me. May that be our response, O God, as we behold the glory of God in the face of Jesus. May we respond by saying, we have been set apart by you, O God. Now, may we set ourselves apart to be used by you in whatever purposes you have for us. May your holiness drive our holiness. And may we live our lives in obedience and to the grandeur and the glory that you have set forward for us in your word. We love you, Lord. We pray these things in the name of Christ. Amen. This has been a sermon from Emmanuel Church. To learn more about Emmanuel or to give, go to Emmanuel with an I, Birmingham.com. You can also follow us on Facebook or Instagram at Emmanuel Birmingham.